0: We spent quite a bit of time in 1 Corinthians the past couple of months, and next next week, Pastor Calvin's going to be preaching, and I don't know what uh, where the Holy Spirit will lead him necessarily, but currently, the plan is he's going to get us back into the Gospel of Mark with the exciting story of the arrest of John the Baptist and his beheading. So, if that type of story appeals to you, you're sick, um, but... But uh, I'm looking forward to hearing it. I'm going to be on vacation this week. I still will be here to teach the class on Wednesday, and we have a board meeting Tuesday night. I completely forgot about when scheduling my vacation, but we're going to make that happen. And uh, most of the week, I'll be out of the office, and if the weather gets a little better, hopefully be doing some camping. So praise God for that. Big if, right? Big if. A lot of blankets, Um. But we're going to begin reading today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It begins in in verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. If you get nothing else from this message today you're taking notes and you want to write this down, or just remember this one thing. Everything, everything in your life hinges upon what you believe about Jesus of Nazareth. I'll say that again. Everything hinges upon what you believe about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when I say this, I'm not speaking hyperbolically, but I do not think that I've ever preached a more important message than what I'm about to deliver to you today. And I don't say that because it's Easter. I don't say that because I'm the one preaching. I don't say that because it's faith assembly and this is our church. I say it because this word is vital. It is of most importance. This message, if we miss it, if I miss it, we can easily miss all that matters. When I say everything hinges upon what you believe about Jesus, I mean it. Many of you have heard me say over the past nine months now, your life imitates your theology. What you believe about Jesus impacts everything else in your life. It'll affect the way you talk. It'll affect the way you think. It'll affect the way you act. It'll affect the way you treat other people. What you believe about Jesus of Nazareth, who we call Jesus Christ, shapes everything else in your life and it changes everything. You don't believe that or you don't understand what I mean by that. It's quite possible you are rejecting the gospel. You are rejecting who he is. He said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do Nothing. He's not saying that apart from me, you can do nothing of eternal significance. He's saying he is sovereign God. Apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. We believe that as Christians. We believe that he is the Christ, that he is the son of God. We believe everything hinges on on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why it's so important that we teach it, that we preach it, that we share it with others. Everything in your life hinges upon what you believe Jesus Christ of Nazareth now, as much as it did for the apostles then, and it will change your life forever. I say now. We go back to verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. When Paul says, I remind you, it's the Greek word, uh, gnorizo. And it really would be read something like, I want to make known to you. To those who heard me preach this before and those who haven't heard me preach it yet, I want you to remember this very thing. The word itself actually means to make known or reveal. And in the context, he's basically saying, I just want you to understand the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel you say you received, because the gospel that Paul preaches mattered. It mattered greatly to him. It was the same good news, the same gospel message the apostles, the disciples had all preached since the death and resurrection of Jesus. They'd been sharing it throughout the whole world. This good news is key to their movement. In fact, Paul said later or later in our Bibles, but actually earlier to the Galatian Christians, he said, if anyone deviates from the gospel that we preached, that person brings a curse upon themselves. He said, don't listen to them. If they're not preaching the same gospel, they don't, we don't need to listen to what they have to say. What they're saying doesn't matter. He says to the church of Galatians exactly, he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, it doesn't matter what... Power he speaks in, how great, how eloquent he speaks it. It doesn't matter what signs and wonders accompany him. It doesn't matter if he's an angel of God himself. If he's deceiving you with a different gospel, ignore that being. Ignore them because they are bringing a curse. The word he uses is the Greek word anathema, and it means an eternal curse, eternal torment. Their gospel is false. Don't believe it, because the gospel matters. Everything hinges upon it. If it's been preached to you and you've received it, you believe it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what Paul tells the church in Rome. But you don't just believe it in your heart, you testify to its truth. That's standing on it. That's what Paul's referring to here. We call it our testimony. And your testimony as to what Jesus has done in your life is a very powerful thing. If we've truly received it, it's changed our lives. It's changed the very core of who we are. Now, if we believe in vain, we can't expect this message to do anything, right? It becomes null and void. We don't care. It doesn't change us. We've we've rejected it. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we believe it, if we receive it, we stand on it and we are saved. Nobody takes that from you. Now you can reject it. You have the free will to reject it. But nobody's going to... I don't like the the term, lose your salvation. Can people lose their salvation? No, I, I don't believe people can lose it. I believe they can reject it. I don't wake up one day and go, hey, where'd my salvation go? right? We don't lose it. We reject it. And Jesus said, basically, you're the only one who has that that ability. No one's going to steal it from you. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It was preached, and they received it, and they stand on its truth, and they're saved. Can we say the same thing this morning? Do we hear the good news? Do we hear that gospel, and we say, "Praise God! I believe it. I stand on it. I still receive it. I'm still being saved by it." Amen. I hope we can say that. But what is that good news? I said last week, so few people understand it. That's why so few people few people accurately share it. But Paul gives it to us. He He lays it all out for us. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Did you catch what he said? For I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, everything hinges on this. This is the most important thing we have to understand. That Christ Jesus died? No. People die all the time, right? Innocent people die. That's why most states in the United States no longer have an electric chair. The only thing that matters is why he died. The purpose must have power. It must have historic significance. It must have meaning. It's not just that Christ died, but it's that he died for our sins. The early church understood the purpose behind this death. He died not as some cosmic accident. He was a sacrifice, a willing sacrifice. In the Old Testament law, an animal would be taken and and the people would put their hands upon the animal in a symbolic act of transferring their sins from themselves upon this animal. And the lamb or the, the goat or whatever it would be would be led to the slaughter. And the New Testament writers, they got this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, Jude... They all see this connection within Christ, 1 Peter 2:24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed." The writer of Hebrews, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Peter saying this, Luke is writing this. This Jesus delivered up to according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Paul writes again to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree. And the list goes on. Our sin, our shame, our guilt, our curse was placed upon him on that cross. He paid our debt. He took the responsibility for our rebellion. He was punished in our place. You can say it however you like, but the fact of the matter remains, Christ Jesus died for your sins. In fact, the last words of Jesus as He hung on the cross and in, in John's Gospel, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. It is finished in English, it's three words, but in the Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. And they found it on receipts where the debt was paid in full. That's what he's saying. The debt is paid and he died. He gave up his spirit. You see, the cross is not just some ornament we hang up in a church. It's not something you hang from your rear view mirror or around your neck. It is the symbol of the sacrifice our God made for us to be debt-free before the Father. Paul doesn't stop there. He adds one other thing, and he says it twice, actually. He says, in accordance with the Scriptures. The Old Testament predicted this, all of it. Isaiah 53, we covered this last week. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, almost a dozen times he uses the word fulfilled. Ten, eleven times he refers to how Christ is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Whether it's Jesus' flight to Egypt as a baby in Matthew 2 or his use of parables in Matthew 13, the gospel of Matthew continually points to Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jesus himself in Matthew 26.56, he says, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And Paul doesn't stop with just the death. He says that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The fact that Paul mentions his burial is key. It's important that we remember it. It confirms his actual death. We do not bury living men. He was physically dead. There were people who could attest to that. We believe Jesus gave up his spirit. Like I said, once everything was fulfilled, he died. He suffered an incredible beating. He experienced pain from the crucifixion alone, from the nails, the crown of thorns. On, on, and during a crucifixion, people would struggle to exhale. They would push themselves up on the nails to breathe out. You could breathe in just fine, but breathing out was very difficult. And they'd either pull themselves up on the nails with their hands or push themselves up on the nails with their feet just to release their breath. Most people who were crucified died because they couldn't breathe out. Not to mention, Jesus had a Roman spear jammed through his side and into his heart by a professional soldier. People don't survive that. So Paul clarifies he's buried. That's not the end of the good news though. According to the scriptures, he does not stay dead. We saw this last week in Isaiah, the prediction of the resurrection. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But then we see Psalm 22. And if you've never done a study on Psalm 22, I'd really challenge you to do that this week. Psalm 22 begins with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where else do we hear that? The cross of Christ. In fact, the first 21 verses is about the torture, the breaking, the beating of a man. How he's put to death only by the remaining verses to praise God for his rescue and telling his brothers that God rescued him. It's no coincidence that when Matthew gives his account of the resurrection, he quotes Jesus as saying, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. But why? Why does Paul appeal to the Scriptures? Why does He point to the Old Testament? Why does He connect us back as He shares the Gospel? Right, We're just the New Testament church. The Old Testament, we should unhitch ourselves from that. right? We shouldn't care about the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament continually points us to Christ. The apostles did not just make up this story so they could sell something. They didn't make up this story because they, they wanted to be martyred. They didn't do that but they prove Jesus was who He said He is. It's not just good news that can change your life, but it was the good news that becomes a part of your life, That is, it is the center of your life. We have a hope when all else seems lost, when all other hope seems gone, we have hope that our Christ rose from the grave and that He's coming back someday and on that we can rejoice and we can get excited because the resurrection that He experienced on Easter isn't the last resurrection. We have a resurrection to look forward to. We have hope because of who He is and everything, believe me, everything hinges on what you believe about that. Everything hinges on what you believe about Jesus. It matters now as much as it mattered to the apostles then. Verse 5 goes on. It says that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Not just that the disciples believed Jesus' body had disappeared, but He actually appeared to them. He showed up. There was a bodily resurrection. He wasn't just some phantom or ghost or hallucination. Some people try to say that. Some some scholars try to make that case that, that the apostles were witnessing a, a mass hallucination of some kind. That, in fact, I read Bart Ehrman who said that Peter's guilt was so infectious that it caused a hallucination amongst the rest. i um, sorry, Bart. Guilt doesn't work that way. Hallucinations don't work that way. Also, ghosts don't work that way. Because unless you get your understanding of the paranormal from, I don't know, TVs on the CW channel, ghosts don't eat. Ghosts don't need to nourish their bodies. But Jesus did. Luke 24, while they were still at disbelief for joy they were, and were marveling at him, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. At the end of John's gospel account, he has Jesus cooking breakfast and eating fish and bread with the disciples. Ghosts don't cook you breakfast. And again, unless you get your theology from Hollywood. They don't have physical bodies that, that do those things. They also don't have physical bodies that you can touch and see and feel their scars. Of course, we always remember doubting Thomas, right? Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I can put my fingers in the, in the holes in his hands and in and, and his side. And Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says those famous words, My Lord and my God. Luke also confirms Jesus appears to Peter first after his resurrection. The disciples who'd been on the road to Emmaus, in Luke's account, they return to the rest of Jesus' followers and they're told, The Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. So Paul is continuing to tell the same story the disciples told for years. He is risen. He's not dead. He goes on. He says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. 500 eyewitnesses. They all saw Jesus' resurrected body, this dead man who wasn't dead anymore. He's up and walking around. Paul's probably referring to this event in Matthew 28 when Jesus says he's going to meet them in Galilee. And Matthew says the 11 went, but of course all the disciples, everybody who wanted to see this thing happen, they're going to go, right? People are going to show up. Matthew says in Matthew 28, 16 and 17, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. It was there Jesus tells them, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's the launch of the church. These 500 people go forth telling of what they saw. They all saw the same thing. They all witnessed the same thing. You know, last Sunday, the Yankees played the Red Sox. Well, that's a a quick U-turn, Pastor Jeff. Hold on to your seats. Yankees played the Red Sox. Forty six thousand people, forty six thousand one hundred eight, to be exact, showed up to watch these two baseball. These guys, these two teams, have played against each other for almost one hundred and fifty years. Can you believe that? Forty six thousand people showed up, and if you were to just to take five hundred at random, five hundred people from that crowd, you know what the end story is going to be? The Red Sox won. Couldn't, maybe couldn't tell you the final score, but they'll tell you the fact. The Red Sox won. Paul is saying, go back and ask those 500 people. Some are dead, but most are still around. And you know what? They're going to tell you the same thing. He is risen. That's why Paul mentions so many people, this good-sized crowd, because what's the, what's the expression? Three people can uh, tell a lie if two of them, or can, can proclaim a lie as truth if two of them are dead right? Three people can can keep a lie, keep a secret if two of them are dead. That's that's the expression. But 500 people? And he says, and most of them are still alive. You know why he said that? Because some were dying as martyrs. Some were being put to death. Some probably had died because of Paul. And he can tell you some of them are, most of them are still around. Go ask them. Investigate. I'm telling the truth. So if you don't believe what Paul is preaching, just investigate it for yourself. Of course, nobody ever in the first couple of centuries discredits this. Nobody says that that didn't happen. Many historians will say that at least his disciples believed it to be true and were willing to die for it. Even some liberal scholars today they have to concede the fact that somehow this Jesus appears to have cheated death. Not just enough that he died. But he rose again. That proves his divinity. He proves he's God's son. There are, there are no accounts of those 500 or the disciples recanting or changing their opinion. In fact, they all would be willing to die for that truth. It mattered to them. It mattered greatly to them. But then Paul goes on. He says, then he appeared to James. Now, this is important. This is This is a life changed by the gospel right here in 1 Corinthians because if you remember Paul or I'm sorry James is Jesus's half brother, right? And if you remember from our Mark series, what did James, what did Jesus's brother James want to do? He wanted to kidnap Jesus and take him home because they thought he'd all gone crazy, right? But he witnesses the resurrected Christ. He sees his brother who he knew to be dead now alive and he becomes a leader within the church. In fact, he writes what we call the epistle of James. He's a leader in the church of Acts. Because of his faith in Jesus, because he witnessed the resurrection, that he believes his brother, who he once thought was out of his mind, is truly the Messiah. Because of his faith, James could say this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing do you understand this was a man who wanted to kidnap his brother and hide him away because he was afraid that people might think that he was crazy too that people might think less of their family because Jesus was an embarrassment to their family and he's saying you know what you can suffer because of you can suffer greater things because of who he is because he will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the power of the gospel in the life of James, the change within his life. He went from a doubter to a leader. And then Paul concludes, of the eyewitnesses, he speaks of himself, his own experience. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And Paul's referring to his encounter on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul didn't have some vision. Paul didn't see a ghost. Paul didn't have a hallucination. He saw the resurrected, glorified Christ, and it made him blind. He witnessed what what Peter, James, and John witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9, and he can't even see anymore. And so he goes and he stays with this man, Ananias, And this guy Barnabas comes and sees him. These are witnesses to the account that that Paul has experienced something. He's seen the resurrected Christ. In fact, earlier in his letter to the Corinthian Christians, he refers to this encounter. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That's in 1 Corinthians 9.1. This encounter changed Paul. It converted him from being a dangerous religious zealot to being a meek preacher and teacher of God's word. But his statement This is what gets me. He says, as one untimely born. If we understand that, it's very self-deprecating. Paul is really saying something humble here. The Greek wording is, is that that would be used to a premature birth or even a miscarriage. Paul's saying, I'm not someone who's worthy of the calling that's upon my life, but yet Christ appeared to me and it changed me. As much as the gospel changed his life, as much as the death and resurrection changed James's life, Peter's life, the rest of the disciples, it has the power to change your life as well. Now, as much as then, and it will change you forever. Verse 9, he continues, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. We have to stop and ask, is this the same guy? Is this the same man from Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 9, who wants to go and and drag Christians out into the street and beat them until they recant, until they say that it was all a lie, that they make them blaspheme? Is this the same uh, zealot who was standing there holding coats while Stephen was being stoned? Or is this a man who's been made humble after witnessing the glory of God? After he has an encounter with Christ, somebody he never imagined seeing again, someone so much more merciful than he deserved. someone so much more gracious than his mind could fathom. Paul's encounter with the risen Christ changed him. It didn't change just his beliefs. It didn't just change his mind. It changed his very core of who he was. It changed his heart. In fact, he even admits here, he says, I was a persecutor. I was was not a good person. And I'm not worthy of the calling upon my life. Paul's sins were very real to him. He knew the evil that hides within the hearts of men because he knew the evil that hid within his own heart. And in spite of this, or perhaps because of this, to demonstrate God's unending grace, his steadfast love, his undeniable work of sanctification within a person's life, Paul's made an apostle, a representative for Christ. He's going to suffer for Christ. Even though he hadn't been with Jesus during his earthly ministry, he, he witnessed the resurrection. And he was commissioned as an apostle with a ministry to the Gentiles. He speaks of it to the Galatians this way. He says, But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's not to say that Paul doesn't think he should be an apostle. He very much is an apostle. His calling is not lower than anyone else's. The call upon his life is the same as that upon Peter, James, John, and so on. Paul often defends his apostleship. He, he often states he has the same rights as the other apostles do. In fact, he does that in, earlier in 1 Corinthians 9. I won't read that this morning. But he says, guys, I'm an apostle. Not by my doing. It's Christ who made that happen. And it needs to be recognized. He he's said, you may not see me as an apostle, but I am one. Not by my own will, but by that of Christ himself, who called him and made him his apostle. And Paul will say later to the Romans, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I can testify that that's true. That that's true. Paul goes on; and he clarifies that is, it is only by God's grace he's made an apostle. He says, "By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not so that it, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me." Paul's clarifying for his readers and for the Corinthian church, it's God's grace that makes this ministry possible. Grace alone transformed him from being a persecutor, the religious zealot who'd tear people away from their beds at night and try to make them blaspheme and made him a zealous preacher, a meek teacher of the good news of God. He contrasts himself with the other apostles. He says, I had to work harder than any of them. Paul's not saying my ministry is more effective. Paul's not saying, he's not bragging, look at my work ethic. He's not doing that. He's just simply saying, they had a three-year head start. They got to spend time with Jesus 24-7 for three years while I was studying the law. Paul doesn't get that. He doesn't experience that in the same way. He was converted after the fact. So he has to work harder than the rest. And the, the Greek word there is ekopiesa. It means he labored to the point of weariness. One scholar said this word comes from the joyful pride of a skilled craftsman. In other words, I poured everything I had into this by the grace of God. It's not the life Paul saw for himself, but it's the life he loves. It's the joy in his heart that he gets to share the good news, the gospel of truth of God to the Gentiles, that he gets to share the love of God with anybody who's willing to hear him, that he gets to find new ways to share the gospel. I imagine Paul is one of those people who just, loves to walk through a town and think of ministries that he could do and things he could do to to reach the people. We see him do this in the book of Acts. He's walking through the city of Athens, and I imagine he's asking himself, how can I take this culture and point them to Christ? And what happens is he ends up standing before the men of the city, and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious because I saw your objects of worship. I saw your altars to false gods. I saw your temples to false gods. I even saw you had an altar to an unknown God. But let me tell you about the God who made himself known. And in Acts 17, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And that man he appointed was Christ. See, Paul looked for every opportunity to share the gospel because the gospel had shaken and shook him to his very core It had changed him. His life was centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so every time he had a chance, he would point people to it, to the truth of the death and resurrection of his Savior. That's the model for all of us. That's the goal for all of us, to take the gospel that's changed our lives and to stand on it and to receive it, to believe it, to be transformed by it, to share it, to spread it like a wildfire to anybody and all who will listen to us. That's the gospel. That's what it does for us, for those who receive it and believe it. It's what it did for Paul, and he concludes, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe the gospel Paul preached, the gospel the apostles preached, that's what we must believe. That's what we cling to. That's what we stand on if we truly believe it. But now comes the sad news, the bad news. Quite simply, not everyone will receive it. Not everyone will allow this to shape them, to change their heart. To bring them to repentance. Jesus himself said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And he goes on, he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many great works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You See, they may know Jesus, but does Jesus know them? Those who enter by the wide gate, those who try to to make their own way into salvation, they miss it. the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. The gate that is wide, the way that is wide leads to destruction. And many will say, but God, didn't I, didn't I do this or didn't I do that? It won't matter that you knew Him if you didn't have a relationship with Him. If you know Him, so what does He know you? See, the sad fact is every day, every day, Every single day, people miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance from their heart to their head. They know it. They know Scripture. They know the Bible. They they know Jesus. They know about salvation. They know about church. But they don't love Jesus. Not really. They don't love their Bible, which speaks of Jesus. They don't love their church which should be teaching them the Bible, growing them to Jesus. They don't grow closer to Jesus. They know Him, but He doesn't know them. Enter by the narrow gate. He alone is the narrow gate. He said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except Through me. There is no other way to be saved. If we do not believe in him, if we do not accept him, if we do not live for him, it does not matter that he he died for you because you've not received him. And I'll say this and I'll move to close. In the book of Acts, in the third chapter, there's this man who sits outside the temple at the gate called Beautiful. And he's a beggar, he was there every day. And his friends take him to this gate every day. And as people go in and out of the of the synagogue or the, the temple, sorry, as, in, as they go in and out, he begs for them, for money. likely has a cup or his hand out. And at some point, he becomes kind of passive about it because most people probably don't give him anything. And so he, he sees John and Peter going into the temple and he likely asks for alms. In fact, Scripture tells us he does. He asks for money half paying attention. And Peter stops and he says, hey, look at us. Verse 5 of Acts 3, it says, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. He looked at these two men, probably expecting to get money so that he could go and buy food just to be hungry again. He might have looked at them expecting to get money so he can buy clothes which will just wear out. But he looks up at them regardless. It says he fixed his attention on them. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Truth is, I don't know why you came this morning. Maybe this is your church. Maybe someone convinced you to try Faith Assembly of God. Maybe, maybe someone had to drag you here because it's Easter. We don't do the fog machines and the laser lights. This, this is us. We don't bring some kind of crazy worship experience. In fact, pretty much we didn't change anything for today. We have an Easter egg hunt after service. That's about it. This is who we are. We're not about the silver and gold. But we offer the gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that will help you walk. That will help you stand. Paul said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, believing in the gospel will change your life. We believe that. That's the message of our church, that Jesus Christ can change your life he has for many of us in this room and if you're here and maybe you've made a lot of mistakes maybe you've been living for yourself maybe you you know Christ but you don't know if he knows you today's a great day to make changes the bible calls that repentance it doesn't matter if you're perfect nobody's perfect i'm definitely not perfect people say well doesn't god just love me just the way i am absolutely he does but you know what he's a good father I always use this example, but now I have a more perfect example because I have a three-year-old son. And we are in what I like to call the latter stages of potty training. And the other day I was carrying him inside and he was resting on my forearm. I mean, I'm just carrying him in like this. I have groceries in this hand, a bag in this hand. And we're walking into the house. And as I enter the house, my left arm becomes very warm. And very wet. And I'm wearing my favorite jacket. And yeah, I was a little irritated, to say the least. But I said, Linus, you need to go potty? Yes. I'm going to put you down. You're going to go potty. Daddy's going to go throw his coat in the washer. That was it. Did I not love my son in that moment? I was a little... Little angry at his behavior, but I'll tell you what, still loved him. I would fight for that boy in that moment. I'd die for that boy in that moment so that he could go potty and clean up his mess. And let me tell you something, God is a better father than I am. And he died to clean up the mess in our lives, to save us from that mess he loves us in spite of that mess and he will clean us up in his timing don't worry about that he'll do it but don't hesitate hear the gospel one more time today and let it change your life God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life Jesus died on a cross taking our sins upon himself he was buried he rose in victory from the grave all according to the Scriptures. he did it for you he did it for me he did it for us if you believe that today i'm not going to ask every head bowed every eye closed and you raise your hand no this is this is in your heart you make this decision today i'm not going to ask for eye contact or any kind of show i'm just do you make that decision in your life today if you'd like if you if you'd like someone to pray with you we have a prayer team here grab an usher grab a greeter grab me after the service No one can make that decision for you. You have to make it on your own. But if you've received that gospel, if you've received that good news, it will change you to the very core of who you are. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, we come before you today And we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the truth that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose. And because he was risen from the grave, Lord, we look forward to a resurrection. Lord, the joy of you is not that someday we die and get to go to heaven to be with you. The joy is that you come into our life now And we are with you forever. Father, we worship you today. Pray you're glorified today. And whether someone's watching online, listening to the podcast, or here in this very room, I pray that the word has penetrated their heart and begun to change. Who they are, what they're about, how they think, how they talk, how they live for you that we go from knowing Christ to being known by Christ. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.